This episode of Norman Centuries is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, information, and educational programming. Keep listening after the episode to find out how to get a free book from Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com norman. Norman Centuries by Lars Brownworth. Episode 8. William Ironarm. Welcome back. Last time we talked about the Battle of Hastings and its aftermath, ending with the death of William the Conqueror. The 11th century would prove to be the great period of Norman adventure, and though it was already half over by the time William first entered London, its greatest conquests still lay ahead. Remarkably enough, they would largely be the achievement of a single family, not a noble or wealthy one, but that of a simple knight named Tancred de Houtville. He was a second-generation Norman, whose grandfather had arrived with Rollo, and he settled in southern Normandy on a small plot of land. Virtually nothing is known about Tancred other than the fact that he was remarkably fertile. He had five surviving sons by his first wife, and another seven by his second, in addition to an unknown number of daughters. This was a problem since the family was relatively poor. Once they came of age, there was not nearly enough of an inheritance to go around. His son seemingly had only two options. Divide the inheritance twelve ways, making it too small to support anyone, or slug it out and let the victor claim the entire thing. Fortunately for the younger sons, at this point an uncle returning from pilgrimage in Italy advised them to try their luck there. This was an attractive offer for a number of reasons. Italy was a beautiful land with ancient monuments and impressive relics. It had a pleasing climate and was the destination of some of the most popular routes on the pilgrim trail. What really interested the Houtvilles, however, was the political situation. The north was controlled by the Holy Roman Emperor and was relatively stable, but the rest was a confused mess that was a haven for mercenaries. The center was more or less held by the Pope, while the south was split between the Byzantines, minor Lombard princes, and autonomous towns. To add to the confusion, Muslims from North Africa had conquered Sicily in the 9th century and made frequent raids up and down the coasts, further destabilizing the region. The first Normans had arrived at the beginning of the century and had been enlisted as mercenaries on all sides, though the Lombards trying to carve out a homeland usually made the most generous employers. When William, the oldest Houtville son, reached Italy around 1035, he didn't have to look far for work. Within months of his arrival, the Byzantine Empire decided to conquer Sicily and put out a great call for mercenaries. The pay was sure to be good and the opportunities for plunder immense. William didn't hesitate. Joining 300 fellow Norman knights, he enlisted immediately. Under the brilliant Macedonian emperors, the Byzantine Empire had turned the tide against the Caliphate and was engaged in a great push to clear the eastern Mediterranean of Muslim pirates. The Macedonian line had ended with the death of Basil the Bulgar Slayer in 1025, but the army he had created was still formidable and won a string of victories in Syria and along the Anatolian and North African coast. Now it turned its attention to Sicily, hoping to clear out the main pirate nest and win a rich land of grain, cotton, sugar, and fruit groves for the empire. The timing looked especially good. Civil war had erupted in Sicily, the aristocracy was divided, and central authority was collapsing. A large part of the population was still Christian, and would be eager to act as a fifth column. To command the invasion, the emperor chose George Maniakes, the rising star of the Byzantine world. Charismatic, headstrong, and larger than life in nearly every respect, 
Maniakis had a reputation as imposing as his physique. Even the usually unflappable members of the imperial court seemed stunned to be in his presence. After reporting that the general was ten feet tall and had a roar that could frighten whole armies, the imperial historian Michael Sellis concluded by saying that those who saw him for the first time discovered that every description was an understatement. This was most likely not an impression shared by the brash young William de Houtville, or at least not one he would admit to publicly. But when he joined the general, even he had to admit that it was an impressive army. In addition to the usual mercenary forces of Italian adventurers and grumbling Lombards who had been pressed into service, Maniakis had brought with him a company of fierce Bulgarians and some Varangians under the command of the Norse hero Harald Herdrada. At first the great army carried all before it. Messina was the first to fall, followed by Troina and Rometta. Within the next two years, a dozen major fortresses in the east were taken, with only Syracuse managing to hold out. There, a spirited defense by the local emir frustrated every attempt to force the city walls, and each unsuccessful effort started to demoralize the Byzantine army. After one particularly dismal episode, the gates opened and the emir galloped out at the head of his army. The sortie caught the Greeks by surprise and they fell back in a panic. The retreat threatened to turn into a rout until William, seeing the danger from another section of the walls, leapt into action. Making a sudden charge straight for the emir, he struck him with all the force he could muster. The blow nearly split the man in half and sent him crashing lifeless from his saddle. The demoralized Saracens fell back to the city, but they had little more fight left in them and asked for terms. William's sword stroke had delivered Syracuse to the Byzantines. But, more importantly, it had won an immense reputation for him. From that day on, he was called William Bras de Fer, Iron Arm, and his fellow knights began to defer to him. He had a knack for getting people to trust him without inspiring resentment or making enemies, and he would need these skills in the days to come. For, despite the victories, the campaign was starting to fall apart. The imperial court, as always suspicious of a too successful general, had started to slow the shipment of supplies, Pay for the mercenaries began to lapse, and disputes arose over the division of spoils. Things came to a head when the Normans sent a Lombard emissary to formally lodge a complaint with Maniakis. Characteristically, the hot-headed general saw this as a personal affront, and had the man whipped and paraded through the camp. The frustrated Normans left the expedition, bitterly protesting their treatment. It wasn't a complete loss, however. William had learned a valuable lesson. Sicily was rich and disunited and there were plenty of Christian allies to aid any invasion. That bit of information was filed away for a more opportune moment. When the time was right, the Houtvilles would make good use of it. As for the Byzantine army, it collapsed completely in 1041. Maniakis forgot himself enough to physically assault a well-connected colleague, and was recalled to Constantinople in disgrace. The heavy taxation he had levied on southern Italy to pay for the expedition, and the long absence of the troops— led to a wide-scale revolt in Apulia. The imperial government had their hands full holding on to Italy and withdrew the remnants of the army from Sicily. This imperial setback revived the old Lombard hopes for a kingdom, and William found plentiful employment as a Lombard freedom fighter. With a combined Lombard-Norman army, he invaded Apulia, the richest part of Byzantine Italy, and captured the town of Melfi. Within a year, he had extended his control to the surrounding territory, a fertile plain that grew so much grain that it was known then as now as Fat Apulia. The Byzantines were not inclined to simply accept this, 
and the energetic local governor raised a huge army stiffened with Varangians, determined to crush the Lombard revolt once and for all. Against him, William could only muster about 300 knights, and twice that number of foot soldiers, but they were ready to fight. The Byzantines were broken by repeated cavalry charges, and most of their forces were drowned trying to cross a nearby river to escape. Two months later, however, the governor tried again, this time with regiments from Asia and a large number of the returning Sicilian forces. William, suffering from a fever, had been forced by his doctor to watch the battle from a nearby hillside, but he couldn't contain himself, and plunged into the struggle, leading the cavalry charge that splintered the Byzantine line. His heroics won the day, and again the defeated imperial army was crushed. The Normans captured the governor's baggage, including his rich collection of silver and gold plate, vestments, armor, horses, and equipment. William made good use of these spoils. They were generously divided, he kept little for himself, and used to attract an influx of recruits from Normandy. The additional strength allowed William to spread the revolt through much of the interior of Apulia, driving the Byzantines to the coasts. That woke Constantinople to the severity of the situation, and they quickly sent the one man capable of turning the tide. That spring, Maniaches returned to Italy to crush the revolt. He did so with alarming violence, swatting aside a Norman force and engaging in a savage campaign against all the towns that had wavered in their loyalty. Dissidents were crucified, women were raped, and children were buried up to their necks and left to die. The brutal tactics worked. Local support for the rebellion evaporated, and the Normans were left dangerously exposed. But Byzantium was no longer the force it had once been, and plagued by its conspiracy-ridden court, it inevitably destroyed itself. Maniaches met his end in a suitably grand fashion, nearly bringing the entire empire to its knees. His troubles had started when a wealthy and well-connected Anatolian neighbor named Romanus Sclerus accused him of encroaching on his land. Maniaches was rash enough to start swinging, and he beat the man to within an inch of his life. When Romanus recovered, he swore revenge and took full advantage of the general's absence to loot his house, burn his fields, and, as a final insult, seduce his wife. He spent the next year undermining Maniaches' reputation at court, successfully persuading the emperor to recall him in disgrace. Here, however, Romanus at last overstepped himself. He just couldn't resist the temptation to enjoy his enemy's discomfort firsthand, and traveled to Italy to deliver the imperial summons in person. Maniaches did not take the news gracefully. Seizing Romanus, he had the man's ears, nose, and mouth stuffed with horse dung, and then slowly tortured him to death. Hurling curses at the man on Constantinople's throne, Maniaches declared himself emperor and marched on the capital. There was no general in the empire capable of stopping him, and by the time he reached Thessalonica, he had all but taken the crown. Here, however, fate again intervened. Riding out to a skirmish with loyal imperial troops, he was killed by a chance spear throw and his army disintegrated. The surviving rebels were paraded backwards on mules in the Hippodrome, and the empire was spared further bloodshed. With military options no longer viable to restore the situation in Italy, Constantinople turned to the tried-and-true method of bribery to weaken the rebellion. The main Lombard ringleaders were offered generous pensions to switch sides, which they eagerly accepted, and the Normans were left once again on their own. They were still technically fighting for Lombard freedom, but they no longer trusted their allies and decided to elect their own leader. The trouble was that they all saw themselves as equals, and found it hard to accept a superior authority. They did recognize the need for a united command in battle, 
but the same independent and ambitious streak that had led them to seek their fortunes in Italy made them virtually ungovernable. William was the military hero of the rebellions, and was dutifully given the title Count of Apulia, but this was mostly wishful thinking, as the Normans only controlled a small part of it, and William had little real authority even over his fellow knights. He was the first among equals, able to rally them against common enemies, but little else. This, however, was enough for the moment, and William began to establish himself as a regional power. Marrying the daughter of the Prince of Salerno, he accepted his father-in-law as his feudal overlord, and entered the ranks of the Lombard nobility. In response, the prince officially invested him with Apulia, which was divided among the twelve most powerful Normans. The town of Melfi, which they had first conquered, was to be held in common by all twelve, as a sign of equality. William had come a long way from the landless son of a poor knight. Under his loose leadership, the Normans had been transformed from simple mercenaries to landed barons. With the conquest of Melfi and the creation of William's title, the cause of Lombard nationalism was effectively dead. From now on, the Normans were fighting for themselves. As for the Byzantines, William made it quite clear that he intended to push them out of Italy. In 1045 he invaded Calabria, but was sharply checked near Taranto. It proved to be the last campaign of his career. The next year, as he was readying yet another expedition, he caught a fever and died. His death left the Normans of the south at a crossroads. There was clearly great opportunity, but also the beginnings of a dangerous backlash. The Lombards, Byzantines, and even the Pope were concerned by their growing power, threatened by the change to the status quo, and the populations of Apulia were beginning to look on the Normans as oppressors rather than liberators. All it would take was a single spark to ignite this growing anti-Norman storm. The former mercenaries seemed oblivious to the danger. Eager for individual gain, they were disunited and busy trying to squeeze every bit of plunder from their conquests. What they needed was a leader who was strong enough to enforce discipline and direct Norman energy into productive channels. Fortunately for them, that leader arrived in Italy just months after William's death. Join me next time as I talk about his half-brother Robert Giscard, who would achieve the greatness that William only hinted at, and, in the process, prove himself the most brilliant general the Normans ever produced. Norman Centuries is a podcast written and recorded by Lars Brownworth, author of the book Lost to the West and creator of the 12 Byzantine Rulers podcast. Visit us online at normancenturies.com. At the beginning of the show, I talked about how to get a free book from audible.com. Just sign up for an account at audiblepodcast.com norman and download your free book. Audible offers over 80,000 hours of audio programs from 270 content partners that include leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, podcasters, and business information providers. One of the things I really like is the recommendation engine. Once you've found something you like, it suggests similar work from the 60,000 available titles. It's a great way to discover new stuff to listen to. They also have my book, Lost to the West, which is the story of the Byzantine Empire, a civilization that preserved much of classical law, literature, and culture, but which has been largely forgotten. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash norman and sign up today.